You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode is presented by author of Everyday Evangelism, Stephen Abbott. This episode is a snippet of the first night of the Sharing Jesus course. The Sharing Jesus course looks to equip Christians to share their faith in natural, everyday ways. St. John's is running this course over four weeks. The course continues on April 25th, May 2nd and May 9th of 2018. If you'd like to join this course, head to stjohnsdc.info to register. Good evening, everyone. Please take your seats and we'll begin to get started. My name is Julie Blinko, and as I mentioned just before, I'll be your MC for these four evenings. I'm a staff member at St. John's, which is where you are here now. Um, I'm going to uh, begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you praise that you are alive and at work in our city of Melbourne. I give you praise for the churches and the groups represented here tonight. And we ask you, God, for the city of Melbourne. I pray, Lord, that you would use this course to equip um, and strengthen, encourage and enable us to share about you and to train others and raise disciples to do the same. Lord, we give you praise um, for what you will do in and through us in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Tim Johnson. He's the senior minister here, and he will be introducing Steve Abbott. Thanks, Julie, and uh, welcome, everyone. It's great to have you here tonight. It's a great privilege to introduce uh, Steve Abbott uh, to you. Uh, Steve uh, is... Uh, someone who has a lot of ministry experience, uh, and uh, particularly in the area of evangelism, but also uh, local church and training other people. So he's been uh, a parish minister in Ulladulla and also in uh, West Pennant Hills in, in Sydney. He uh, lectured at Ridley College here in Melbourne uh, in evangelism and other ministry subjects. Uh, he's worked in the United States and studied over there. Uh, and he was also a training officer with uh, EFAC, the Evangelical Fellowship of the Anglican Communion in Victoria and used to mentor and train people around Victoria. Uh, he's wonderful at mentoring people and uh, he's been a mentor to me. I'm part of a mentoring community that Steve has led for the last 10 years. All the good things I take responsibility for. <laughs> All the other stuff, it's on him. <laughs> uh, so it's wonderful on a personal note to welcome uh, Steve here to St John's tonight. Uh, and thank you for coming and we look forward to good what much. you have to share with us. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Well, I, what I'm doing tonight, I love doing. It's one of the things I love doing probably... Other than preaching the gospel, um, training people how to share their faith is the next highest thing I love doing. So um, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Um, so we're going to look at everyday evangelism, topic one. Now I'm going to give you some preliminary information about the background to this training course so that all the maybe wrong ideas some people have about evangelism training might be pushed out the window and you'll have a better idea of what I'm talking about in this course by talk, giving you a little bit of historical background. Um, I, I often train people in evangelism in my local churches, and I use tools like Two Ways to Live, some may have heard of that, um, which involves six diagrams and six verses to memorise. Um, I taught people in teaching tools like Christianity Explained. And I found, though, that when I train people in the local church in these tools, um, only the evangelists seemed about to pick up and run with them. 
Um, people, um, if you excuse the phrase, but the rank-and-file Christians, those that didn't have special gifts in evangelism but had a sense that they needed to be able to share their faith, that every, which every Christian ought to have, um, they, they struggle to put these things into practice. And I thought there's something wrong with how we're training people, in my own view. And so what I, I determined to do was to work out how to get everybody in the Christian community on the playing field of evangelism. And how, how would one do that? Now, this, this process took place when I was working in the United States. So what I decided to do, we, I, got, um, I took a group of people away with me for a weekend. Um, I took away a retired couple who'd been professionals, uh, business people. I took a, a couple of um, business people away who are currently in the business world. I took a young couple who were about to have children in their 30s, uh, but they weren't business people in the sense they were more on the lower socioeconomic. They were workers in, and worked with their hands. And then I took away a single woman who was an accountant. So we had a single person, retirees, a middle-aged couple and a younger couple. And I sat down with them and said, look, I want to come up with a training course that helps you be able to share your faith in everyday relationships. All I did was set these parameters. I said, we're going to look at the Bible every week and it needs to be in four weeks because I think if it goes to five, it, it feels like it's, um, it's two months, even though it's only five weeks. So we want to try and fit it into four weeks. So then they gave me, we spent the weekend writing down all the things they thought they needed to be trained in and would be helpful for them. So they could go into the marketplace and feel comfortable sharing their faith. And so I came back from that and then over a couple of weeks I wrote the first draft of the course. I gave it to them, they rubbished it <laughs> and I rewrote it and they rubbished it a little less and I rewrote it and the third one they were much, fairly happy with and we field tested it. Uh, and it seemed to really be, have its desired effect. We had people saying, oh, I can do this, which was what my hope was. Because what I... What I think we were doing in the past, um, we were actually, it was like taking, kind, uh, we've just had the Commonwealth Games, and you can imagine some school teachers getting excited, let's, let's get all of our children in our kindergarten started with athletics, that'd be a great thing to do. So let's start with a high jump. And so you get all the little athletics kids out, and you make the rule is you can't go to the rest of the field until you've jumped over the high jump, and they said it a metre. Well, there's only a couple of smart kids work out that they can dive over it. Everyone else fails, and they never get onto the playing field. And I think that's what we did with evangelism training. We raised the bar, starting bar too high, and no one got into the field. It wasn't, I'm not talking about lowering the content of the gospel. We can't do that. But just what we required of people to learn, we were squeezing people into a particular mould. What I did, I projected. I figured, I can use two ways to live. Everybody can use two ways to live. Well, that's just a load of rubbish uh, it doesn't work for some people. It requires you to be able to draw, and if you can't draw, it becomes difficult to use the tool. So we've, I became convinced that we needed something that was biblically, biblically grounded, but just helped people get onto the field. So anything they had to learn wasn't too demanding. Well, I hope the proof of the pudding will be what you say at the end. Um, let me begin. God put me on earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now, I'm so far behind, I will never die. 
How many of you feel like that? You feel that your bucket is already overflowing. And then your senior minister says, I want you to come and do an evangelism course. And you suspect that that's not the end of it. Because at the end of the course, he's then going to say, now, by the way, we're going to start doing some door knocking. Since you've done the training, and I think that's people feel like their buckets are overflowing. They haven't got time to put anything into their life. I want to assure you that this course is the only thing it should take up is the time you do in doing the course and a little bit of work during these four weeks. Because it's not about doing some training to do a program. It's about you and your relationships with people and how to change your life so you can be more intentional. Not add things, but be more intentional in how you engage with your world day in and day out and the contacts you have. So don't be fearful. Now, I also think that when people... uh, My cartoons, by the way, you'll see how corny I am and how old I am. But um, anyway, I find they communicate really well at some point. So I hope they do anyway. You probably can't read that, but I'll read it for you anyway. This is uh, like a parable for me, a Peanuts cartoon about evangelism. Uh, Nancy starts off saying, Life, Charlie Brown, is a lot like driving on the freeway. I'd like to say evangelism is a lot like driving on the freeway. Some people love the fast lanes. There are people who are gung-ho for evangelism. They have the gift of evangelism and they go for, they go for it. Um, and they have no problems except they often leave broken and damaged people all over the place because sometimes they're not very sensitive and thoughtful in the way they go about doing evangelism. But they're the fast lane people. Also, we have some people that can't resist the passing lanes. These are the people who pass on evangelism. They say, well, it's not my gift. I'm a church warden. Um, I'm a treasurer. I'm a parish council member. I'm, I teach Sunday school. I do youth ministry. So um, they want to pass on evangelism um, and they think it's not their responsibility. Others are content to stay in the slow lane. Now, these are the people who want to bridge, uh, uh, build a bridge to their friends and non-Christian friends and they, they've, they've built the bridge but they've never, ever crossed it. They're still always building relationships. They're always trying to get a bit closer to them, but they never open their mouth about their faith in Christ. They never talk about Jesus. They're the slow lane people. But I think the majority of people come into another category. And here comes the question that Charlie Brown's been asked, and I'm going to ask you. On the freeway of evangelism, Charlie Brown, where are you driving? And I think the answer that Charlie Brown gives reflects where a lot of people are in the church. Now, please don't take offence if you disagree with me, but my experience, a vast number of people in the church, you may not be because you're here, but this does not represent the majority of your people in your congregations. I think this is how they feel. I think I missed the exit 10 miles back. They're not even on the freeway. They, They don't know where they are. They suspect they should be, but they don't know how to do it. And that's another reason I wrote this course, to try and help people get over their fears, their apprehensions, and to say, um, make life a little easier. Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, um, verses 13 to 16. Now, this is a psalm of David. Uh, The psalms are the songbook of the Bible. 
Um, this is one of my favourite psalms. This psalm talks about God knowing everything and being everywhere. But right in the middle, there's this statement where David describes his creation is being um, made in his mother's womb. And it, uh, the psalms are the songbook of the Bible. They become the songbook of the people of faith. And so the truths that are articulated here can be applied to us as well, in my view. How many of you get up in the morning, have your shower, step outside, look in the mirror, in the full-length mirror before you put your clothes on and say, Oh God, I thank you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. (laughs) Or do you say what I say? Oh no, what have I done? (laughs) We might not do that, but the fact is we can. But what's really on, on show here isn't the formation of the externals in my understanding of this text. David is talking about his inner being, the person he is that God has made and fashioned. David uses uh, a, a clear descriptor of his mother's womb by using the term mother's womb, but then he gives two other phrases, secret place in verse 15 and depths of the earth, that are, are words that describe his mother's womb again. He's using poetry, it's a poetic piece. And uh, notice he says in verse 15, he talks about my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Uh, this is not. This is this is like very early in. He's thinking about the very early stages. It seems to me, of his being created. But even before the skeletal, it's not talking about the skeletal frame in my understanding here. The body is not yet fully formed, and yet God created him. I think the frame here personally has to do with who we are in terms of our personality. Uh, Put your hand up if you see yourself as an extrovert. See, it'd be pointless in me asking you for an introvert to put your hand up because they (laughs) wouldn't put them up. (laughs) We are made different. And you know what? Extroverts think they're better. But they're not. (laughs) It's It's just how they're wired. Everyone is fearfully and wonderfully made. And your frame, your personality, who you are in your personality, whether it be on the introverted end or the extroverted end, that has been fashioned by God. Yes, it has been corrupted by sin. Uh, Yes, we were all brought up by dysfunctional parents. And if you're a parent, you're dysfunctional. Please be aware of that. You're sinful and therefore you're dysfunctional. We all make mistakes in bringing up our kids. And that's why we need to pray for them. And that's why it's great being a grandparent because you can make up for all the mistakes your kids are making when they come to your place. (laughs) I noticed one of the younger people tonight, uh, someone, uh, one of the soon-to-be-another-grandparents said to them, oh, we're about to have another child. And the uh, younger person said, no, you're not having it. She just doesn't understand, does she? (laughs) As a grandparent, they're your kids. (laughs) Be aware that you are fashioned by God. And it seems odd to me um, that when we come to train people, we don't necessarily acknowledge that too often. So we download. We think everyone can do what everyone else can do, and they can't. So I tried to write a course that enabled for people to pick and choose uh, what might work for them and to make it more focused on their story than on some technique of training. There will be some techniques we'll share with you, but 
um, the fundamental one will be telling your story. So the paragraph under Psalm 139, a couple of blanks, let me read through that for you. Effective evangelism is carried out by people of different, people of different styles, personalities, sensitivities and abilities. Indeed, the kind of people who are best spread the faith are the kind of people we already are when we have, key words here, willing and obedient heart. The issue with evangelism in the local church has to do with intention, with people being deliberate and purposeful about who they are and going into their world knowing they go as a representative of Jesus every day of their life. And so every conversation, every contact is a potential contact for Christ. But we need to think like that. A little cartoon about golf. Obviously, no, about dieting, sorry. Obviously, just thinking about it isn't going to get the job done. I've got to commit myself to being involved, to doing something about it. I never realised dieting and evangelism had so much in common. <laughs> You've got to commit to it, don't you? You can talk about dieting till the cows come home, but until you ring up and order light and easy, you're not serious. Or whatever else you might want to buy. Once you start spending money, you start dieting. <laughs> because it costs you. It's the hip pocket nerve. Okay. We looked, we're down to God wired us to be obedient. I want to say this. The Bible, God's word, presents evangelism as a being word. That's the blank there. A being word before it is a doing word. What does Matthew 5, 13, 16 say? Does it say you are to be the salt of the earth? You are to be the light of the world? What does it say? You are. See, it's a being concept. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, 13, 16, comes hot on the heels of Jesus' teaching about us being different, uh, being set apart from the world, being countercultural. But as soon as he's finished talking about being different to the world, he then talks about us being influential in the world because those two ideas belong together. It's by being wholly set apart that you become influential. You're different. You've got something to say that the world needs to hear. And, and so we need to see we don't have a choice about this. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be influential for him. And we're incredibly naive if we don't think we're already being influential either positively or negatively. You get up on Sunday morning, you get in your car and you disappear for an hour or two or three hours if, if Tim's preaching because it goes on. No, it's not true. I know that Tim doesn't preach long. He's a brilliant preacher. Um, and then you come home and your neighbours are not stupid because you do it every Sunday, hopefully, and they think, well, they know you're a Christian if you haven't had the conversation with them already and they know that. So they're now watching you. Uh, this should scare, scare the pants off you. It really should. They're watching you. And they're making a decision about Jesus and the, and the creator based on what they see in you. You and I are witnessing whether we like it or not. So don't do it by accident. Do it intentionally. Become deliberate and purposeful 
in the way in which you engage with your world and be equipped so you can do the job better. Now, another passage, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, reinforces this. So it's not just what Jesus teaches. Uh, Peter says, not that you are, uh, that you are to be a royal priesthood, but that you are a royal priesthood. We are the mediators between God and the world. You are the go-betweens, the royal go-betweens. You are to bring people to God in prayer and you're to bring God to people through communicating the message of Christ. You stand between the world that doesn't know Jesus, that's in darkness, even though they don't know they are, and those and the God who is full of light and love and compassion. You are to be the vehicle of that truth. The reality is, though, that um, when you first get converted you can sometimes um, get carried away and, and go bull at a gate. Um, so I've got a little video clip. I hope it'll come up. I hope the sound will come through too. If not, I'll pump up the sound on the... You, the picture tells the story anyway. I see this as a bit of a parable of our first attempts at witnessing and why we need to do training so we don't make this mistake. Uh, there were no animals hurt in the making of this film, I understand. <laughs> what they can do these days with, um, with work. Now, we can go bullet at gate. We can go racing. We're going to, you know, but in the end, we are the worse off than the people we're trying to serve. Now, someone last night said, uh, are the Christians the lions that are <laughs> now going to pick up the pieces? <laughs> That's not the picture. The picture is we're the, we're the antelope that just races in where angels fear to tread and we make mistakes because we haven't thought it out. We may be enthusiastic but we want to be wise at the same time. And that's a good intro. Oh, I just realised I left the blank out. There you go, just remembered. Um, on p- following Jesus' metaphor, we could say there is no following the Lord without fishing with the Lord. Jesus says to the when he calls people to himself, he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. See, the whole notion of following Jesus, becoming a follower of Jesus, is, is, in, is couched in discipleship evangelism categories. It comes with the territory. Can't follow Jesus without being caught up in his mission. And we want to make sure we do it wisely. So I'm now going to give you a little exercise to do. I do not want you to fill the blanks in, um, but I'd like you to read Colossians 4, 2-6 at your table and have a little Bible study. But this is the question, before you start, here's the question I want you to answer and and also a statement about what I don't want you to do. I want you to look up what are the Christian's responsibilities in communicating the gospel of Christ to lost and unchurched people? What are the Christian's responsibilities? I don't want to know what Paul's responsibilities are. You could do that as well, but that's not the task. So have a discussion, read the text, and I'll give you five minutes um, to go through. It's only a short passage, and to write down all that you can find out that Paul says are the Colossian Christians' responsibilities. Okay, um, we could keep going, but I think you've hopefully been able to read the passage carefully, and from what I'm hearing, most of you have uh, picked up on most of the answers. Um, What I'm going to do now is work through my outline of this passage and you're going to help me fill the answers in from the work you've just done. So, uh, my outline, I've I've divided into two responsibilities. The first is what I see in the text 
is Paul calling on the Christians in Colossae to pray for him and his evangelism team. These are the gifted evangelists, gifted pastors, teachers. They're the ones that have been called to do this full-time ministry by God and he says, we need prayer. Um, I call on all ministers to make sure you ask your people for prayer. We need that. Uh, we're, We're at the forefront. We can be a great cause of stumbling if we were to stumble. Um, But we need prayer for the gifted evangelists. And then the second area, I think Paul then moves from talking about praying for him and his strategic leadership role in evangelism, planting churches, to then the churches that have been planted, the people within those churches living out their faith proactively and intentionally. So then we communicate with people. We share our faith. Let's go through those. The first point. Evangelism is God's business and hence our first privilege and responsibility is to pray. Now we do it watchfully and thankfully. Uh, Paul often uses words that can have several meanings. We had a discussion last night um, down in Frankston where we were teaching this course where um, someone thought watchful had to do with you know, watching your behaviour um, as you're, you know, make sure you keep walking with Christ and be aware of temptation. It could be watchful, it could be, it could be that. Um, it could be watchful for um, temptation and for the work of the devil, getting in the road of evangelism, look out for stumbling blocks. It could be watchful for people who are open um, and uh, just being alert to what God is doing in certain circumstances so you get on track with his path and not your own path. We know that Paul sometimes didn't go to places because the Lord closed the door for him. He wasn't just praying, he was watchful to what God was doing. And always Paul encourages us to give thanks when we pray because we can always give thanks for the gospel of Christ. So Paul goes further though and gives specific prayer requests that you ought to pray for gifted evangelist church planters. He says pray specifically for what? Open doors. Open doors for the word. Now, that phrase could mean several things. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? He was in prison for his faith. Now, I'm going to tell you, if I was in prison for my faith, I'd be wanting you to pray for open doors. (laughs) Get me out of here. Now, that could, in fact, be Paul's word. I think the metaphor allows three possible... Um, interpretations and I actually purposefully think that Paul may have chosen the metaphor for it could mean all three. On the one hand it could be open doors so he could continue his mission field and continue to go and share the gospel and plant churches in the further reaches of the Mediterranean. It could be um, open doors, I'm imprisoned, I still want opportunities, I want to keep being faithful and we actually know God answered that part of the prayer The quote from Philippians, the text I put there, is that Paul shares that when he was uh, under house arrest, he was able to share the gospel with all of Caesar's guard, the Praetorian guard. They come, they were a captive audience. They thought Paul was captive, but they were captive and they they got to hear the gospel. Paul took the opportunities that came his way. But it could be also he's praying for an open door in the hearts of people, that people might come to faith. Certainly when I'm preaching evangelistically, I pray that God will not just bring people who need to hear the gospel, but he also open their hearts to Christ and they will hear the gospel 
and sometimes it happens and it's a great joy. But that's the first thing. Then he prays that preachers to be what? Clear in communicating Christ. Aren't these very practical and down-to-earth prayer requests? Because if you have a great clear message but there's no non-Christians there, you're wasting your breath. But if you have a fantastic lot of people there and the preacher isn't clear, that's no good either. So Paul says you need to pray for two things, open doors and clear preaching um, so that God can do, will do his work. God will do his bit. we just got to pray that we'll set it up well. And with the mission coming up in June, do you know who's preaching here, Tim? Not here. So you're going to do it yourselves. Yep. I, I know, I've, I already knew you were, you were having evangelism Sundays, so here's the opportunity. You've got to be working hard at building trust relationships so you can invite your friends to come and hear the gospel. And you know if the preachers from here are going to preach, it will be clear. So you need to make sure you've got people here to hear the message. That would be a great thing. Okay, now that Paul goes on, the second part, verses 5 to 6, is really Paul saying, now you've got to put legs on your prayers. You can't just pray and then think, I've done my job in evangelism. You've got to do it yourself. But notice the way in which he calls on rank and file everyday Christians to live out their faith and to be influential. We are to conduct ourselves, what? Wisely while making the most of the opportunity. The logic of that verse can't be mistaken, I don't think. It is by our living wisely in the world, being wise in the entertainment that we participate in, being wise in the conversations we have with our neighbours, that we don't get caught up in slander and gossip about a neighbour who might not be there, and who might be a real pain, but don't get caught up in the slandering and the discussion. Um, the way we play sport, we play with sportsmanship, we live wisely in the world so that we are different. And that living wisely, Paul perceives, will lead to opportunities. But notice Paul doesn't say he's not asking you to go onto street corners and preach. He's saying live out your faith intentionally. Living wisely here is not a suggestion. It's an imperative. We need, to, we need to give ourselves to it. Now, um, then he goes on to say, the effective witnessing in verse 6 also includes being ready to speak the gospel. And I've, used, I've come up with three adverbs to capture what I think the text is saying. See if you can work out what they are. So the first, what would be the first adverb? We are to speak graciously. We speak graciously. We speak it means that our, our speech ought to have the same qualities as the grace of the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of forgiveness. It's a gospel of kindness and generosity and comfort and compassion. And our speech needs to have those qualities about it. The, our speech ought to share the same qualities as the gospel itself. And then he talks about being seasoned with salt. This is probably an idea that comes out of the proverbial literature. A proverbial literature uh, is words that you read like iron sharpens iron. You go, hang on, it makes you stop. You've got to come, let me think, what is that, what's that actually saying? And he's talking about Christians learning to say things that will draw people in. I mean, who can eat one salted peanut? 
pretty hard, isn't it? Because once you've got that salt, you want some more. Same with salted chips. I have to buy smaller bags at home because my wife normally doesn't eat them, but when she does, the whole packet will go. <laughs> and I don't get any. So I've got to get smaller packs so she won't open another one. I'll get, at least I know there'll be one left for me. Because she loves those salted chips. Glad she's not here. She'd be saying, why did you say that? <laughs> so what's an adverb that might capture that sort of idea? Moorish? Moorishly? <laughs> that would be good. I put down interestingly or compellingly. Attractive. Attractively. Um, one of the phrases that I use, Tim will have heard me use this phrase, I'm sure, um, with people when I'm in personal conversations, sometimes in preaching, I will make this phrase. Jesus is the best way to live and the only way to die. And people ask you, hang on, what do you mean by that? It's not all that clever, but it, it, it actually is helpful. It draws people in. Another way of thinking about what Paul is saying here is that you've got to scratch where people are itching, but not till the scratch goes away. You want to say, oh, a little bit more, thanks. Don't give the game away. When you start to speak the gospel, don't say it all at once. Just say enough that they might then want to know more. Bring them into the conversation. It's not, really, it's not about being really clever. It's just a matter of being thoughtful. And then he talks about the fact that if we speak graciously and interestingly, he says we'll have to end up answering questions. Do you see the parallel with living wisely? Living wisely leads to opportunities. Speaking graciously and interestingly leads to people asking you questions that you've then got to answer. That's the sort of logic of the text. And so we need to answer people appropriately. Because if people answer a question, you don't just rattle out your formula, you need to answer their specific question. And we'll look at questions on the fourth week. We'll look at the whole idea of how we go about um, having the right attitude in order to answer questions thoughtfully and wisely. Okay then, just a final comment at the bottom there. These three components suggest sensitive yet substantial speech, which awakens in others an appetite for the things of Christ. A final word, it should be clear from these verses that while there may be many different styles of evangelism, it is every believer's privilege to engage in it. Uh, notice that the commands here are not specific about using two ways to live or some technique. It's just about being Christian. It's about living wisely and speaking graciously and working on trying to be a little more interesting than maybe we normally are, trying to bring people into the conversation. This is, a, this is a privilege of everybody to influence people for Christ. Now, one of the difficulties that I think we gen, gen, generally have in the church, that Christians have lost their ability to speak using God talk or using Christian terms in our conversations. So what do we talk about after church? Now, I'm sure that's not true of your churches, but most churches I go to, They'll talk about the weather, the AFL, you know, work, or, or a new grandchild. <laughs> we, you know, and there's nothing wrong, don't get me wrong, it's okay to talk about those things. But because we never talk about our faith, we never talk about Jesus with other people, we end up losing the capacity to talk about it outside of the church. We need to develop skills 
and get used to hearing ourselves very naturally and authentically speaking about faith without any embarrassment and without any apprehension. Now, the only way we'll do that is by practising. You've been listening to Stephen Abbott at week one of the Sharing Jesus course. Head to stjohnsdc.info if you'd like to join for the next three weeks. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you that you are the one that's calling people to yourself. You are the one that's written eternity in people's hearts. You are the one that so extravagantly and outrageously loves each and every person on this planet. God, we um, pray again that you would give, the, give us wisdom, give us enthusiasm and give us these skills. Lord, we bring to you our neighbours, our friends and those that are on our hearts, those that we know well, those that are just relationally sort of distant at the moment. But we pray that you would open the doors for your gospel to be preached clearly and go forward in our, in our networks. Thanks, Lord, for Steve. I believe this is the third night in a row that he's taught this course, or maybe second night of three, but he's teaching it three times this week. And we pray, God, for incredible fruitfulness as he equips and um, teaches the, the people of Melbourne in this. Yeah, we pray your blessing on each person in this place and safety home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.